Hello, you're listening to Rural Roots, a Harris Center show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. I am Boyan Fierst. In October last year, we at the Harris Center at Memorial University of Newfoundland organized 2019 Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation Conference and North Atlantic Forum. This was an excellent opportunity to record some important rural conversations, and this episode will feature another excerpt from a conference panel discussing the future of rural work. The moderator for the panel was Dr. Rob Greenwood, Associate Vice President of Public Engagement and External Relations at Memorial University of Newfoundland and the Director of the Harris Center. Barb Neese, second from the right is the John Patton Lewis Distinguished University Professor at Memorial in the Sociology Department, longtime colleague and champion for rural Newfoundland, Labrador, Canada, and the world. She's also co-director of the Safety Net Center for Occupational Health and Safety Research. She's a member of the Order of Canada, a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and a member of the Scientific Advisory Committee of the Council of Canadian Academies. So she's not very busy or hasn't achieved much. But Barb continues to answer emails at 11 at night and uh, is an amazing mentor for students and younger faculty. And so great to have Barb here. Kerry Murray has been involved in several of Barb's projects, actually. And he's Director of Social and Economic Policy at the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of Labor. And the Federation of Labor in Newfoundland Labrador has been very active in a lot of MUNS projects. And Kerry often is the key liaison. So great to have Kerry here. Sharon McLennan from the College North Atlantic is on the right-hand side looking out, so your far left-hand side, is Director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Workforce Innovation Centre, College of the North Atlantic, based in Corner Brook, and she'll tell you more about that, I'm sure, but a brand new, relatively new initiative with a pan-provincial mandate and connected nationally, and a great collaborator with the Harris Centre and many of others of us working in this space. Ray Bowman, who is still out of the room, so I'll probably wait and we can all make fun of him as he comes in about using PowerPoint. Chris Fulcher, who I just met about two hours ago on your far right, is Assistant Research Professor of Rural Sociology at the University of Missouri, but he also runs a really cool research center, his bio doesn't say that, but does a lot of great work working with the Extension Service in Missouri, and I'm sure Chris will tell us more about that. Uh, Robert Keenan, next to Chris, is a project manager with the FFAW Unifor, the Fisher Persons Union in Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, enormous influence and uh, cuts across many sectors. And Robert also, we've partnered with many times over the years, so great to see you again, Robert. And Ray Bowman, why don't you march in and everybody, he's the one using the <laughs> There, he's among friends, so he's not feeling too intimidated. Ray actually also uh, has been a long-time champion of rural Canada, uh, most of you know. He's an associate of the Harris Centre. He's former chief of the Rural Research Group in StatsCan. So if it has to do with rural data, if Ray doesn't know about it, it probably doesn't exist. He's former president of the Canadian Association of Rural Studies and the Rural Canadian Agricultural Economic Society. And he's a member of the founding committee of SURF which was in Saskatoon about 35 years ago. 
And so really great group, international, Newfoundland and Labrador, labor, academy, etc. Um, so I think Barb will let you go first. You can come up here if you want, or you can do it from there. Okay, so, so I'm going to start by asking what is rural work? Um, because I think, I mean, part, I've been here now for a day and a half, and I, st I still think we tend to think of rural work as work in rural communities. But a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last eight or nine years with a lot of other people in this room, uh, part of what we're exploring, in fact, is how we have many communities, including in this province, that live off of work that happens someplace else. So it could be rural work, it could be urban work, and so on. And we know that, you know, we have this notion of metropolitan influence zones and so on and so forth. So we know that there are people who live in rural areas and work in urban um, areas. You know, the wives of farmers, for example, who sustain, or the husbands who work away in construction while the wives run the farms and so on and so forth. So I think it's, when we think about the future of rural work, I think it's really important not to focus on the jobs that might be created in Bonavista by the work that happens to be happening in Bonavista. And the second thing is, if we are focusing there, then we have to look at who's doing that work. Right, because the other thing about rural areas is that they draw in people from many other parts of the world now. I mean, it, we used to think of international migrant labor as largely urban in terms of its concentration, but of course it's not. You know, the Banff tourism sector is heavily reliant on international migrant young people for the most part. Uh, who are coming here to work, but there also is a layer of temporary foreign workers who work there. You think of the Brandon, uh, agricultural industries, and so on and so forth. So, so again, I think if we're going to think about the future of rural work, we have to think not only about rural uh, people working in cities, but also the way in which rural work in one area uh, is influenced by rural work opportunities somewhere else. And what Keith Story and Heather Hall have called, you know, this problem of dependency at a distance, in a sense. We used to have single industry towns. It was easy, right? You could say the work of the town and the work of the same unit. Uh, but even, I mean, historically, that never was exclusively that way. I think particularly in rural areas, people were always moving for work. The seal hunt is a classic example. You grew up in a rural community, you traveled to St. John's. Once they moved to steamers, you got on the steamer, you went to the ice, and so on and so forth. The work wasn't in your community. You worked in high steel, you lived in Conception Bay uh, or the Bonavista Peninsula, and you worked in high steel or in house building uh, down in New York, and so on. So I think, you know, I would have liked to have seen, seen and I had only a very quick, quick look at it in the state of rural Canada, a theme on migration and mobility. That theme does exist in the, the, uh, the RPLC, which is a sort of sub-project of SURF, but there, you, this notion that we're dealing with something that's static, right, where you can assume that there's a relationship between, a close relationship between where people live and where they work, uh, I think we all know is problematic for rural areas, and, and from a, in terms of data gap, Huge data gap. You know, the Functional Regions Project, I think, is a really important project, but it still doesn't capture for rural Newfoundland and Labrador or urban Newfoundland and Labrador the extent of mobility. And we don't have easy access to data on interprovincial employment, for example. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Burr. Kerry. Mm -hmm. 
First, I guess I'd like to thank uh, the Harris Center because it's not very often that uh, labor gets an opportunity to speak at events like this. So Robert and I conspired, and there's two of us here. <laughs> Thanks. So um, at the Federation of Labor, obviously, uh, we have 70,000 members that live and work in every community and every sector in the province. Um, and the whole issue around the changing nature of work uh, is important to us and, and to our members, their families, and the communities they live in, and also the businesses where they are currently employed or could be employed in the future. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm kind of leery when the title has future in it because it's, that's very difficult uh, to look at from our perspective of what work will look like, but in, in a general sense, there are some issues that are front and center about, of how work is changing. Uh, you know, precarious work is increasing, uh, not only uh, in this country and in other jurisdictions, but in our province. Uh, we have, you know, and that, that's work, uh, the gig economy, which is the new thing where they question the relationship between employer and employee. Uh, un declining unionization has an impact. Uh, so there's a whole range of things that are impacting how we see work changing. And we think workers and people should have, should be the predominant force in shaping work. Uh, I know technology is going to have a huge impact. Automation is going to have a huge impact. Uh, and, and some countries are addressing that in different ways. And the manufacturing sector is probably more prone to that, which is a big piece of our economy. Uh, so we've looked at uh, how do we impact uh, how work looks in the future uh, and where workers are benefiting. Uh, for the most part today, a lot of workers, if, if we don't do anything, there's a, you know, workers will probably not be, um, will, not will, will not be front and center in how that all shapes out or shapes so we look at things, and I'm in general for the province, uh, which is our area of focus, but this would happen, you know, this would apply across the country in rural areas, although recognizing they're very, very different. Even rural areas in our province are very different. Uh, but how do we do uh, public procurement and tendering? You know, should we look at, uh, should there be uh, 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 a piece of that process that looks at creating local jobs or how should it impact local business. Uh, and we haven't, I don't think, done a very good job of doing that. Uh, we need to provide, obviously there's a, our workforce in rural is probably a bit older than the Canadian average, probably have in some cases a lower educational attainment. So training and access to uh, uh, adult education and adult learning and increasing the flexibility around that is critical to how we allow workers to be in a better position to enter the labor market as it changes and shifts. Uh, you know, and as Barb mentioned around mobile work, which is huge in this province, and it's not a phenomenon. I don't think, uh, you know, the first mobile worker in Newfoundland and Labrador was John Cabot. He came <laughs> here and then he went somewhere else to work. So it's... It's, you know, my, I'm a Newfoundlander and Labradorian. My grandfather worked everywhere, uh, you know. So, so I think those things, uh, 
outside of the education, there's also another thing. Uh, we are dependent on major projects a fair bit here and have been over the last couple of decades. Uh, and we think uh, or that communities, take Bull Arm, for instance, which is probably the biggest industrial site in the province. They built some big stuff out there. Uh, you know, I don't think communities who are impacted, they're all rural communities. They have, you know, skilled labor and uh, have a lot to bring to the table, don't have a seat at the table and don't have a voice. So I think uh, communities need to be brought into that process because the impact that uh, a $5 billion project can have not only on the region, not only on the province, but on the entire country is significant. And I think communities should have a voice in that. Uh, it, it just doesn't make sense that they are not at the table. I think that that's one part of how we can help that. Uh, and I think I'll stop there for now. Oh, one other thing I wanted to say is uh, around how work changes, we need to have a hard look at the social protection or the social security net for people. Uh, an example would be labor standards. Uh, labor standards in Newfoundland and Labrador haven't been reviewed in almost three decades. And work has changed quite a bit. Uh, even though we have the highest union density in the country, uh, along with Quebec, uh, we have a lot of workers that uh, are not covered by anything other than labor standards. Uh, and they're very outdated. Uh, for instance, to give you an example, if you're a construction worker working anywhere in the province, you make $20 an hour uh, and you work 48 hours, so that's eight hours of overtime, you really only, according to the legislation, have to be paid an overtime rate equal to time and a half of the minimum wage, which is actually less than $20 an hour. So your employer, to meet the minimum standard, could pay you $20 for those eight hours. So we really need to look at that and ensure that as work changes, that you know, there's, a, there's a greater level of protection for workers. I'll stop there. Thanks, Kerry. Uh, Sharon. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be on the panel with other labor market stakeholders as we talk about, and I'll talk about that briefly, as well as the other word that everyone hears, but it's true. It's really a part of an ecosystem. There's lots of players that are involved in workforce development and innovation. There's lots of programs. There's lots of projects. There's research going on. And the more we understand that ecosystem and where the gaps are and the opportunities are by working together, uh, the better off this province will be. And uh, so that's the, the opening, I guess, of that. I thoroughly enjoyed last night's um, thought-provoking and thoughtful panel. And uh, they use the words positive but not Pollyanna. So I'm going to use that for mine because there's no question there's huge labor market challenges and, oppor and opportunities, which is why we exist. We are relatively new in the province. And we're, we're working on building a capacity for innovation and research and development around workforce development. So things are changing. It doesn't mean that we're going to have overnight solutions, but it means that now we're, we've got a capacity that we didn't have 18 months ago or 17 months ago. So I'm going to leave. The other thing that they did last night, we talked about lists, the top 15, top 8. I think I have top 10. But, but before I do that, if, uh, I just want to briefly um, just introduce you to the Newfoundland and Labrador Workforce Innovation Center at College of the North Atlantic. So we were established in 2017 by the provincial government. It's part of a way forward commitment to address labor market issues and challenges. 
Um, we're funded through the Canada Newfoundland Labrador Labor Market Development Agreement, and that flows through AESL to the college for us to fund operations and our uh, research projects, which I wish I could spend a whole hour and a half just talking about the research projects, so I'll just touch on those today. Um, but we exist because there are labor market challenges, declining, uh, our, our aging workforce, uh, declining population, we have out-migration. We have competition and increased competition for, the, for that, sm that smaller traditional labor pool. And I think that's the operative word there I'll leave with you. So uh, we, there are opportunities as well, uh, and there's, there's a number of reports out there. McKinsey and Company has talked about 30,000 jobs now, again, it's a forecast. You have to look at the assumptions, but that was published in May. 30,000 jobs in Newfoundland and Labrador. In, and uh, the bulk of those will be outside of St. John's. So our mandate is to provide a coordinated point of access for all of the labor market stakeholders to come around the table to look at the opportunities and, uh, and say, how are we going to work together as post-secondary institutions, as, uh, you, you know, as government, um, as labor unions, as employers, as underrepresented groups, uh, how are we and uh, how are we going to work together to make sure that we have the, the right jobs at the right time in the right place? So, but our main goal is to promote the research and testing of innovative models of workforce development, uh, but more importantly, those that have impact, a positive impact on employment, employability, and self-employment, and entrepreneurship. Um, we have four core activities, just very quickly, stakeholder engagement. We've done a lot of that in the last uh, year and a half to hear what people are saying, where the gaps are. Uh, research funding, we have funded 20 research projects, totaling $7.66 They're in 12 communities. There's a number of them in St. John's as well, but in terms of outside of St. John's. We have two other uh, uh, core activities that we will be developing this year, and hopefully in collaboration with Mon Harris Center and others. And that would be a best practices repository. And I'm delighted to hear the announcement today uh, that on, the, on the data, the research and report that was just released, and also capacity building. So that's what we do. So from our perspective, the future of rural work is about, uh, at its most basic, addressing the opportunities and the challenges, labor market challenges. Um, it's about the future of work. There's a lot of research on, so we were talking about rural work, but there's the future of work. There's a lot of research done on that by LMIC, but a lot of organizations, so I, we think it's that. It is a rethinking, we think of work in terms of meaningful, decent employment with dignity, et cetera. Um, it is about recognizing the labor market challenges and opportunities with, uh, by bringing people together, promoting innovative best practices, which is what we do. Um, and it's also about workforce development guided by equity, diversity, and inclusiveness. So, and, and increasing the participation rate of the non-traditional uh, labor pool. So it's women, it's youth, it's persons with disabilities, it's indigenous peoples, it's older workers, it's persons on income support. And I think that's the difference. So we have labor market challenges, but if we expand that pool and we test it with research ideas that we've been doing, uh, and hopefully we'll get the evidence that these work, we can share those and they can turn into policies, programs, and ways to employ more people. The future of rural work is really now, and I think we really have to come together and work together. And I hope, as we reach out to you, that you will engage around the table to solve the problems and the opportunities around labor market uh, so this province can prosper. Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. I'll save Ray till the last with his PowerPoint. Uh, Chris, 
Yes, good afternoon, and thank you for uh, inviting me to be here. Uh, my name is Chris Fulcher, and I serve as the director of a center at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, called CARES, or Center for Applied Research and Engagement Systems. We've been around since 1992, and what we do primarily is focus on data visualization, geographic information systems, or interactive mapping, reporting systems, and um, reporting uh, tools that we've done for many years. I really appreciate the previous panel in terms of the data gaps. We struggle with that for many years as it relates to rural. And um, I can only speak to the United States context. Um, the future of work in rural, I think that really is important, is what is the future of work, period, and where you are in place. And in more rural areas, you have constraints that you may not have in urban areas and, and vice versa. Um, but I think uh, a real challenge is around the perception of rural. I think Brian Dobson spoke to that last night in terms of the, in terms of the narrative that's going on in the United States uh, related to rural. How do we change the narrative of rural to really promote opportunities rather than uh, because of the data gaps and the challenges of telling the story in rural America, uh, organizations, philanthropy, et cetera, gravitates toward more urban areas. Um, our center has uh, developed over 33,000 GIS data layers that are publicly available across the United States. And it goes down to the sub-county level. And this is really important. As we try to tell the story related to rural, we need to get below the county level. A lot of our organizations in the United States focus at the county level as the lowest unit of geography for telling a story. But there's so much spatial variability going on below that county level that we need to be telling. Uh, in many ways, we're masking that story by not being more granular. And I look forward to reading the report in terms of the data gaps to how do we get to be more granular in rural areas. With the challenges of small numbers, how do we get at telling that story better? How do we blend the qualitative and quantitative data to really tell that story? And why I focus on the data dimension of this because ultimately informs the work and the work we do and the story we tell related to the opportunities in rural America. Um, we need to do a better job. Uh, with that in mind, uh, our center's been housed in the College of Agriculture for many years, but about two and a half years ago, we moved to our university extension. And if you've heard of the Cooperative Extension Service in the United States, there are county engagement specialists or county uh, faculty in every county almost in the, in the country. How do we really engage a workforce around data acquisition that can lift up that story to acquire data Right now, we're challenged with the American Community Survey, the census data, and other federal reporting systems that don't get down to that granular level we need. And so our, uh, coming, our center coming into extension is to really begin the process of training a workforce around data collection opportunities. The last thing we're about is a research monitoring evaluation group that would scare the heck out of any extension agent because they'd have to just report a whole bunch of data. That's not the point. If we can even capture two to three data points around a county, around a community, uh, but do that across the whole state of Missouri, and how do we scale that up across the country? That is powerful. How do we partner with the United Way, a public health department, a YMCA, to partner around data acquisition. That's another way to tell the story. 
All of those pieces inform the type of work that could be done in rural areas because it could help organizations and the media understand the, what is going on. Right now, we're dealing with the level of abstraction. The abstraction is actually leading to misinformation in some ways. And I, and I wonder with our center and the, all the data that we push out, are we, are we not telling the story the right way? Are we actually contributing to the problem because we're not able to really get as granular as we do in urban areas? That's what we want to really help try to change the narrative around. So it's uh, very exciting from the U.S. context in terms of how we can marry high tech with high touch to begin changing the narrative of rural and how we can work in rural areas. It's not rural in a place. I think that was very well framed before. There's so much going on around how we can work virtually, the issues of broadband, and all those pieces that need to be fit together from a data standpoint to do just that. So I'll pause there. Thank you. Right next to you, Robert. Uh, thank you very much for uh, having me here today. It's uh, interesting to talk about the fishery to a bunch of people who probably are not really engaged in the fishery. So I'll, I'll give a little bit of an explanation to it and then sort of in the meantime talk about the vision of uh, future, future rural work in New Flannel Labrador and that's what it will be stuck, it'll be limited to. But just to be clear, the future of rural work in New Flannel Labrador is the fishery. We don't talk about it as much as we should. We kind of avoid it a little bit. It's a bit of an awkward story, but it is the future. Uh, the fishery employs approximately 20,000 people in rural New Flannel Labrador every year. So that is a, a huge chunk of the rural workforce. It's a huge chunk. And that is far more than, well, it's probably the same amount as tourism, but they pay better wages. It contributes more. And if you took the fishery out of rural Newfoundland and Labrador, you would take tourism out of rural Newfoundland and Labrador. Nobody wants to go see a dead fishing village. Ask the people in Twillingate. They don't get the tourism that... Or not Twillingate, sorry. Ask the people in Trapassi, sorry. Ask the people in Trapassi. They don't get the tourism that Twillingate and Bonavista get. You know, the, and you know what? People aren't going to visit Buckins. Nobody is going to go visit Buckins. You know, they go to the fishing communities. Our tourism is built around... Our rural tourism is built around the fishery, around coastal communities. So we have to be very honest and upfront about where the fishery lies within Newfoundland and Labrador. We also have to be very honest about where it is economically. Fish harvesters are the core of the rural middle class and upper middle class. And this is something that's a very significant change from what happened years and years ago where in the years prior to the moratorium, your middle class workers and upper middle class workers in rural communities would have been your doctors and your nurses and your, and your teachers. And now it's your fish harvesters. They earn a lot of money. They do very well for themselves. Uh, they work very hard for it, but they are the future, they are the uh, rural middle class. And on, below that you have plant workers who also do better than say the average tourism worker because most of them have collective agreements where they're working for more than minimum wage and they're doing okay and they get a lot of overtime pay and so on and so forth. But we do face challenges and a lot of those challenges are um, sort of brought on by ourselves and a lot of those challenges are, brought, are sort of how we've allowed the fishery to become interpreted in Newfoundland Labrador. People in the fishery, fish harvesters, don't like to talk about what they make and what they, how they do well for a living. I sit on the professionalization board, so the fisheries is a profession it has a professionalization board. I sit on that board, and we've often talked about why don't we go out to the schools and talk about fishery as a profession, like, the, like you do for nursing and teaching and so on and so forth. 
And the thing I've always pointed out is that nobody knows how much a fisherman makes because they don't talk about it. It's one of these things that just doesn't go, it goes completely unsaid. Nobody talks about it. And, and so people have no idea. And a lot of people, if I said the fishery was the rural middle class, a lot of people here would probably say, no, what? I never heard of that before. But they are. And when you get into, I mean, a few years ago, we had a campaign to, uh, to basically keep our shrimp fishery in place. And we had a hearing in Gander. And one of the panelists, so there's a federal panel, said, so how much did you make last year to a, a shrimp harvester? And you could just hear him, like, he went, $500,000. And then, and just, like, shrunk back again. But he made a lot of money, like, more money in a year than I'll ever make in a year. <laughs> but, you know, this is the thing, like, nobody wants to talk about these things because it's brand new to them. These are people who grew up in strict poverty, like, very, very, very poor conditions. And now, all of a sudden, within the last 20 years, they have made a lot of money. They are... Uh, they don't know how to explain that. I think there's part of it is they feel bad about it, or or they're not. They don't feel bad about it, but it doesn't. It's not as accepted as it will be for a doctor to make five hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, we view the fishery as different. We view this sort of work as different. That's on the fishery point. On the plant workers point, we do have to change uh, that. We have a significant plant workers shortage uh, with respect to demographics. We have a terrible. Uh, workplace uh, health problem with respect to shellfish asthma, which is actually now a diagnosed condition, where you have, you know, mostly women working in these plants that are uh, exposed to terrible toxins, and it goes right to their lungs, and they develop this asthma, and a lot of them need puffers to work, and so you go in, and you go to the lunchroom, and they take out their sandwich, and then they take out their puffer, and that's very common amongst female workers in these, uh, uh, these plants, shellfish plants that exist in the province. And Barb has done a, an exceptional amount of work on that and has been a great advocate for it. But I think I've probably run out of time, haven't I? You're right on time. Okay, Thank well, you. I'll leave it there. Great. So lower the screen. Ray gets five minutes, and then we'll open it up to you folks. Thank you, Rob. I assumed you invited me because I knew something about numbers. And, uh, and so thank you for the invitation. Uh, future rural work, I was not constrained by Barb by saying whether do you work in rural or do you live in rural and work someplace else, I was talking generally. And uh, so you look at the screen, the first, no thanks, I'm fine. So the first thing to talk about the future, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. I thought Yogi Berra said that, but it's an ancient Danish proverb. But uh, some of you know David Freshwater wrote an article, will manufacturing remain the pillar of rural development? That was true, I think, for up to five years, till 2008, and then I think something happened. So, uh, but on the future of rural work, I think there's an elephant in the room. I think it's climate change. And uh, if there's no policy on climate change, we worry about mitigation. And so I think New uh, Nova Scotia will become an island. So I want to soon join the North Atlantic Islands Project, because Nova Scotia will become an island. <laughs> but uh, if there is policy, we have mitigation and higher price of carbon, so then there are electric cars. So then people can come from further out into the city because transportation will be cheaper, right? To be cheap to drive these cars. But if you get a driverless car, you can come from further out, sit in your car, work for three hours, get to the city, work for two hours at your desk, and go home three hours on a driverless car, right? So fantastic grid gridlock. I can't believe this. So uh, one of the major points I'm talking about is climate change, and I don't know numbers, so let me move on. First, the first important thing is rural Canada is growing. 
overall, but not everywhere. Like on the Avalon, but not on the Avalon, in Halifax, but not outside Halifax, and so on. But successful rural development means there will be fewer workers classified as rural in the future because they get classified as urban. So here we start in 1966, 7.5, 7.6 million rural workers. There was an increase up to 7.7 and reclassification. 1971, there were 7.4 million rural, uh, rural workers. This is rural population. An increase and reclassification. And then 76, 81, an increase, and then reclassification. Increase, 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 and then a reclassification. Here is the only time there's a decline. That was the period in Ottawa when there's a Secretary of State for Rural Development. Dude, be careful what you wish for. Uh, and so there's a reclassification. So at the end of the period, it grew, and the rural population grew in every period except one. We started with 7.5 million. We're down to just under 6 million. Successful rural development means there are fewer rural people. Successful rural development means there are fewer rural people. Rural employment will grow in the future. At the end of the period, statistics will show there are fewer rural workers. So, rural, main point, rural employment will grow in the future, on average at the Canada level, but statistics will show at the end of the period, there's less rural employment thanks to positive rural development that results in reclassification of rural to urban. But in the medium, in the rural, in the medium term, growth in rural Canada, rural employment will be constrained. Here, back in 1966, there were about, uh, let's look at non-metro, uh, 160 people were coming onto the workforce for each 100 that are retiring. Here in about 2008, it went below one. Now we're down maybe 70. In rural areas, every time 100 people retire, or reach retirement age, 65, there are 70 people young enough or old enough to come onto the workforce. So I'm comparing 10 to 19 years of age to 55 to 64. So there's a great difficulty everywhere in Canada, metro and non-metro, in terms of labor shortages. Lots of signs around rural and urban, ah, please apply for the jobs here. So, rural Canada growth will be constrained in the future. Will enough individuals 65 plus keep working? Well, yes, according to this study from Statistics Canada. So, will the future of rural work be worked by, will the future of rural work be employment by folks 65 plus? Yes, or partly, or greatly, depending on your view of the future. So another response in rural has been temporary foreign workers. Is our temporary foreign workers the future of rural work? So another main point. In the medium term, there will be more individuals reaching retirement age than meet the age to join the workforce. There's going to be a constraint on the growth of rural work unless, Rob, you and I keep working for another 10 years. Or 20 in your youthful state. Indigenous Canadians will be an important part of the future of rural work. Let's look at this green bar here. This is the non-metro. The share of kids, zero to four years, the share of kids in non-metro areas that are Indigenous. 16%, 17%, 16%. 16%, 17% of kids under 15 are Indigenous in non-metro Canada. In a few years, 
6% of the new, 16%, one in six of the new workers coming out of the workforce in non-Metro Canada will be Indigenous. And uh, Diane and I are working on a paper on rural education. If you go across big cities to small cities to Ms., the uh, high school graduation rate of non-Indigenous is the same. Rural schools or rural schooling or rural students do just as well as city ones. If you look at Indigenous, regardless of the geography, Indigenous have higher high school dropout rates, higher school non-completion rates, and it's worse in rural areas. There is a problem in high school graduation rates. I think it's a problem. Lots of Aboriginal students say, why would I graduate from high school? No jobs here. Uh, so, in the near future, one in six workers entering the rural workforce will be Indigenous. Let me look at Manitoba. 40%, 40%, almost 40%. Rural development in Manitoba is Indigenous. Indigenous development in Manitoba is rural development. Uh, uh, what do they do? Uh, Bill Ashton and others from Rural Development Institute know that. But in Manitoba, outside the Winnipeg CMA, two in five, 40% of workers entering the rural workforce in the future will be Indigenous. Rural development in Manitoba will necessarily have a large Indigenous component. Uh, so, Indigenous Canadians will be a significant contributor to the future of rural work. Uh, will, will rural work revert to the situation before the era of the standard employment relationship, unionized, nine to five work, pension, and other benefits. And uh, well, newspapers would say there's an increase in contract work. And there's a hidden chart, but I didn't put up too many charts here. In non-Metro Ontario, non-contract work has gone from 5% to 6%. That's a 20% increase in the number of contract workers, but it's only 6%, and it's been flat since the recession. So, more contract jobs? I don't know. Employment in rural Canada will always be seasonal. Uh, and when you do annual data on employment, it's the average of 12 months. So, you've got seasonal work, Rural's always going to be lower on the annual numbers and higher unemployment rates on the annual numbers because it's the average of 12 months. Seasonality will be the future of rural work and the annual data will always show rural having lower employment rates on annual basis and higher, uh, and higher unemployment rates on an annual basis. Now look how much the swing is here on uh, seasonality in non-metro versus the swing in metro. But also notice that when there are jobs, rural workers are as likely to be working as urban workers. So the myth that rural workers are lazy or whatever does not exist when there's a job to work at. So beware of, uh, beware of annual data when you uh, look at these uh, employment numbers. Seasonality will always be with us, but beware of annual data. Rural workers are as likely as urban workers to be employed when there is a job available. Is elder care a future rural work? Yes. You're after me, Rob, and I was hoping for seven. I'm going to go to 6.9. Uh, the people 65 and over in Canada have gone from 6 million to 8 million. We'll get to 10 million. The people over 90 are going to, we're here at 300,000, going to go to 500,000, 600,000. Lot more old folks around. Number one exhibit here. And it's going up in metro and non-metro. So 
elder care will be part of the future of rural work. Rural will likely de-skill relative to urban areas. The issue is as more skilled workers in rural, they're increasing less than urban, rural relative to urban will continue to de-skill relatively. Lots of words here. Oh, I focus on rural Ontario fact sheet will have the chart that I hid. Uh, rural will likely de-skill relative to urban areas. And all of that talk, all of this talk, I've not mentioned broadband, not mentioned productivity, not mentioned innovation, not men mentioned artisanal production, which I think is what the rural future is going to be artisanal production, not mentioned amenities, not mentioned the resource base, not mentioned tourism, not mentioned the role of curling clubs, not mentioned the role of dance lessons, not mentioned the role of potholes, etc. So, we don't have a lot of time. We'll get the mic to you in the audience. Uh, Janelle Scared, Memorial University. Um, so, I feel, so I just wanted to, come, I think it's Chris? Uh, no, sorry, oh, not Robert. Chris. Yes, okay, sorry. Bad with names. Um, I would probably lose a lot of street cred if I didn't uh, <laughs> make mention of this. So, you mentioned that no, no one visits Balkans. Um, <laughs> and you're right, they, they, don't, they don't visit it for the fishing, but for those who don't know, it was a company, Tan, it was a mining company, so anyways, it was deindustrialized, very sad story. But I think perhaps something that's missing from that conversation is the role that community identity and resilience plays in terms of rural work, because, and because of that identity and that sense of community, people are more inclined, they're more um, open to finding other ways to make things work. So, you know, I think it's a common story that, you know, when the main employer leaves, it, tourism tends to go on the upswing. Um, so I, I just, I did want to interject that level of identity and resilience and the role that that tends to play in, you know, where, where we work, you know, where we build our families, where we build our communities and where we, we build those connections. And at the end of the day, you can't live in rural Newfoundland without being an optimist. You just can't do it. Um, so I think that that's perhaps the takeaway. And again, this is less of a question, more of an observation, but I mean, feel free to, to respond. Thank you. And I think with the number of folks and the lack of time, if Robert gets a chance, he can, but any other questions? Back in the room, we got a mic there and a mic with a mic. <laughs> Uh, just uh, one note on seasonality. Uh, I think the seasonality only applies to when you're getting money in. Uh, if you're a tourism operator, if you're a fisher person, if you're a plant operator, you're working year-round. You might only be making money for part of the year, but you're going to trade shows, you're hiring people, you're mending your nets, you're, you, you, there's, a, there's a ton of stuff you're doing, so you're working year-round. Uh, some of your employers, your employees might not be, but if you're the owner or if you're a manager, you're working year-round. So uh, just a, a note uh, that uh, people aren't sitting up, with, sitting back with their feet up uh, for most of the year. Thank you, Mike. Other questions, comments? Two qu comments so far. One over here, far end. Hi, my name's Natalie Springle. I'm from the University of Maine Sea Grant. I'm an extension agent down there. Um, and my question has to do with... Um, seasonality and also sort of data tracking. So I work with, a lot with fishermen and aquaculture farmers and others who are dependent on the sea for their living. And um, sometimes in our neck of the woods, these are folks who work under the table. So how do you track that? And if you can't easily track their contribution to the employment, then how can you provide the adequate services that they need? 
Thank you. I'd say there's a few people here who may have some answer to that. Ray, want to go first? Quick answer is, I don't know. Uh, would they admit to the survey that they were working last week to one part of government, but the other part of government didn't know, didn't know they were working? So it's, it's hard to tell the, if they trust one government department not to divulge to the other government department. But you're right, uh, lots of under-the-table work. Anyone else have something to add to that? Good. Anybody else? Question, comment for this amazing panel. Just one comment on the aging workforce. I find that's a really interesting area. We've just uh, started an aging research center at Memorial. So, and, and I'm sure there's work being done across the country on what that looks like and how we adjust our workplaces. Uh, I'd be interested to hear from labor, for example, how, you know, what's being done to think about how to accommodate an aging workforce and, and that shift that's happening. Thank you. Kelly, who would like to weigh in on that? Uh, Kerry. So um, on that issue of a workplace that's very diverse, we obviously have uh, we've developed internally a lot of uh, workshops and training mechanisms as to how uh, it could be uh, uh, older workers, younger workers. It could be workers of color, uh, workers of different religions, because that is part of how our own workplaces are changing. So that's important. Uh, I just wanted to comment on the uh, one industry town piece, which in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, anyone who's familiar would know we have several one industry towns. <laughs> uh, and we have Buckins, for example, which I have visited. Uh, we didn't have any sort of a transition program or policy or what's known as just transition. I don't mean just a transition, but a, a just that's fair and, and retrains workers and gives them every opportunity to transition, not only the workers, but the community. Uh, for instance, um, in an economy that's fairly uh, or significantly built on non-renewable resources, uh, you know, IOC might have 50 years of iron ore, but if the price goes in the toilet and they have to, they shut down that mine, which is not a discussion that's been void from, you know, happening. How do you transition those workers? If we don't have that plan, uh, you know, it impacts the future, not only of the workers, but the community. How do you transition those uh, workers and businesses that uh, are indirectly benefiting and employed or indirect jobs and that sort of thing? So uh, that's something that should be front and center uh, around the discussion of how we shape the future of work. Thank you, Carrie. Other comments on that? Sharon? Yep, yes, I think we still have some gaps in knowledge, but to your point about uh, older workers, so one of the 20 research projects that are underway, St. John's Board of Trade um, is looking at that very thing. What are the barriers and opportunities to increasing the, you know, the participation rate of older workers in Newfoundland and Labrador? So it'll be made for Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, so I'd encourage you to kind of engage and follow that, but uh, I think it's important that they engage with you as well as they go through this. Right. The Harris Center has an older workers' summit coming up soon. Yeah, yeah. And Bart. Yeah, and just from the point of view of health and safety, you know, the, the aging by itself doesn't really make us sick. Right? <laughs> it's often the things that happen to us in life. And I think one of the areas where rural Canada really needs to get organized and improve how well it's, it's operating is in the field of health and safety. So that, you know, an older worker who has occupational asthma, has cumulative uh, skeletal, you know, musculoskeletal disorders and so on and so forth, what you're seeing there is only one part age. 
The other part is badly designed workplaces and abusive working conditions, mental health issues. Uh, that's the other thing. And those mental health issues could be as, you know, as straightforward as PTSD among a, a fish harvester who watched a crew member die at sea. Right? There are a whole range of things that are part of aging that, are, that really don't have anything to do with how old you are, but have to do with the way in which the world of work in which you have operated has left you either resilient and strong and engaged or debilitated, and it makes it very difficult to do that work. And so in a sense, when it is poor health and safety, poorly managed, poorly designed, poor enforcement of health and safety, then, you know, then it's, it's uh, you know, that's, uh, that's manufacturing a labor shortage, in my opinion. Hmm. Disability, work-related disability, manufactures labor shortages. Uh, rather than them being some natural process that's the result of an aging workforce. Thank you, Barb. We're a bit over time, but Boyne said we could go a bit longer. We started late. Gentleman with a mic, I think, behind the pulse there, or did you? Yep. Could you introduce yourself, sir? Yeah, I'm Bill Reimer still. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to comment on the the very important question regarding under-the-table work. Mm. We're not completely blind to this kind of thing uh, when we look at some of the information and data that we have. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, we have, um, as part of the New Rural Economy Project, a, a good deal of data around those related issues by asking other kinds of questions in terms of the uh, um, informal economy, the exchanges, the kinds of activities that people are doing. And I think that we'll, what comes out of those is some information that we, systematic information that we can say something about the, the, the question of under the table issues. Thank you, Bill. Anyone on the panel want to weigh in on that? Or other final quick questions or comments? Chris Patterson with the Harris Center. So. I find it interesting sometimes, especially, and Ray, I'll give you credit for instigating this thought, is issues we don't raise as influences. So the fact that you started with climate change, I applaud you to say, because who knows what influence that's going to have. But I, then I started thinking about the panel last night, where a lot of the discussion was who has control over the capital. And so one of the things I found when we talk about the future of rural work, isn't it also a big influence, the future of the way we organize our economic systems? And that, who knows what direction that's going to go. But I think it's going to be a big difference if we talk about additional one-industry one towns versus cooperatives or something else, or who knows. So I think that's another really interesting conversation to think about. How do we not just retrain in a just way, but how do we then restructure the entire economy that the folks are working with? Thank you, Chris. You can bring your mic to the panel, to Ray. He put up his hand first. See who wants to respond to you. Thanks. Uh, just a comment on we. You made the point that we are not in a position to deal with the uh, workers that may get laid off by IOC. I think the we should be them. It should be IOC that does the adjustment for the workers into a new job. I think ideally, yes, that's the case. But we've been tragically under, uh, not paying attention to this for a long, long time. We've had it in fish harvesting when there's, there's a thing called a fish plant uh, closure program. And all it does is give people 14 weeks of work, and then they're done. You know, this this is the sort of thing that we we look at. We don't 
We, it, in putting that on the on the company would be great. I just don't think they're ever going to buy into it. It'll be a huge fight. Um, but we don't we 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 don't pay enough attention to this part of it, and I completely agree on that. Uh, yeah, and my point was that we we don't have any sort of a just transition policy piece. Yes, obviously uh, the employer has a huge role to play there, uh, as do workers, as do the community. I think if we had to have that type of just transition. Uh, when the mine closed in Buckins, Buckins would be like Twillingate. Uh, there would be industries there. And we're not reinventing the wheel around this. Uh, you know, it's been done uh, uh, in different European jurisdictions across the EU. Uh, in Canada, they just did a recent uh, just transition uh, report around the coal industry, how you transition uh, workers in, the, you know, in coal-fired power plants they, for Alberta, Saskatchewan. I think there was one in New Brunswick. Uh, Ontario had already done several. Uh, and it's a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of training, but it has to be more of a, uh, it's a social dialogue process involving uh, labor, uh, government, business, and the community. And uh, so, and that's not a new thing. It's just that we haven't gone down that road in a big way. Thank you. Barb? Just on the power and control issue, I mean, I think, first of all, I think climate change, you know, is huge, and but it's, its impacts are going to be differential. They're not going to be the same across groups. The second point I'll make around power and control is part of what makes it difficult to project the future of rural work in Newfoundland and Labrador is Muskrat Falls and the enormous fiscal problem that it has generated. And I'll just point out that there are gender and class issues here, that the beneficiaries from the construction of Muskrat Falls were largely the elites and male construction workers. That the, the people who are paying for that, you know, are the people in the artistic sector, they are the people in healthcare, the people in education, the next generation is gonna pay for that. There may be electric cars, but we won't be able to afford them because of the cost of electricity, right? So, so you know, power and control is absolutely critical and a huge volume of future surplus. And, and I, I use Muskrat Falls, but we could talk about Manitoba <laughs> Hydro, we could talk about many other mega projects across Canada and the way in which they tie up options and opportunities for future research. We argued a number of years ago we need to get away from oil dependence, and we talked about investing not in energy in the sense that we think of as hydro and offshore oil and gas, but in the creative energy of the people in the province in creating an inclusive society where people with disabilities have work that's fair and just. Uh, you know, and if we don't move there, you know, I think we're gonna have little success stories, but what we're going to see is the continuous erosion of our control and access to both wealth and uh, resources and the degradation of our environment and growing inequality. Thank you, Barb. You just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. I recorded this panel conversation at the 2019 Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and North Atlantic Forum Conference in St. John's. The panelists were Dr. Barb Neese, Ms. Sharon McLennan, Dr. Chris Foucher, Mr. Kerry Murray, and Mr. Robert Keenan. I am Boyan Fierst, and I produce Rural Roots at the Harris Centre at Memorial University of Newfoundland in partnership with Rural Policy Learning Commons and Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation. You can find us online at www.ruralrootspodcasts.com 
That's Rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. You can also find us wherever you listen to podcasts and on National Campus and Community Radio Station Exchange. Talk to you soon.